Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. Today, we meet actor and musician Noah Reed. Now, he became involved in theater around the age of six, has been regularly appearing on television since high school, and has appeared in films like Buffaloed and Disappearance at Clifton Hill. But it was his performance as Patrick Brewer, the business partner and later husband of Dan Levy's character David, on the hit television show Schitt's Creek that made him a household name. Patrick was already a well-loved character on the series when, in Season 4, Episode 6, if you're counting, he serenaded David with a very familiar tune. I call you when I need you, my heart's on fire. You come to me, wild and wild. You come to me, and give me everything I me a lifetime of promises and a world of dreams Speak the language of love like you know what it means And it can't be wrong Take my heart and make it strong, babe Cause you're simply the best Better than all the rest Better than anyone Anyone I've ever that was one of the most emotional scenes in the entire series for the iconic couple and is now a fan favorite. It also taught us something about Noah Reed. He can really sing. Turns out he's an accomplished musician with three albums featuring his powerful vocals and very honest delivery. His first two albums, Songs from a Broken Chair and Gemini, collectively have garnered 145 million streams, two nominations at the 2022 Canadian Folk Music Awards in the Songwriter of the Year and New Emerging Artist of the Year categories, and landed Noah on four Billboard charts. His latest album is Adjustments, which will be available everywhere you can legally download and buy music this month. Here's a taste. Well, I don't like the way we're living We can't see what we've been given It feels like these days no one listens Everybody's got too much to say Put your phone down for a minute Look around this world you're in it We treat it like it's all infinite And we throw it all away We throw it all away That was Statues in the Stone from Noah Reed's new album, Adjustments. More on that a little bit later on in the show. First, we get to know Noah and talk about his latest ongoing project that's starring on Broadway in New York City in The Minutes, a show about the inner workings of a city council meeting in the fictional town of Big Cherry. The smallest towns keep the biggest secrets. The Minutes, a new Broadway play from the Tony-winning playwright and director of August Osage County, starring Blair Brown, Tracy Letts, Jesse Mueller, and Noah Reed from Schitt's Creek. Nothing in this explosive 90-minute play is as it seems. Noah Reed joined me live in the studio. Good to see you, Noah. Great to see you, man. So uh, I want to go back a little ways here. So your first 
a real professional stage job was doing Beauty and the Beast in Toronto. (laughs) And around that same time, you get bit by the bug, you want to do that. So you go to New York with your mom. So tell me a little bit about what that trip was like and compare it, I guess, to what it's like now to be a star on Broadway. You're in the minutes, uh, which is a big hit. And it's an amazing show. We'll talk about it more in a couple of minutes. But it's kind of cool to have that first blush of it when you were a kid. And now you're there walking the boards. Yeah, it was very, uh, you know, when I got to New York to start rehearsals on this, I was thinking a lot about that, that kind of that first trip uh, down there with my mom. It was my first time in New York. And I think I was doing like fittings for, for Beauty and the Beast, which, cause they had the Broadway production there. Right. And then we had the, you know, the, the Toronto, uh, production up here and they were, you know, all of their costume shop and everything, the wig stuff all was down there. And so they thought it was, and I think they were doing some rehearsals down there, but I wasn't a part of that. Um, cause I was, there were two chips and I was kind of, you know, right. the, the B chip maybe <laughs> let's say. And, uh, and so, you know, we had like fittings and then we went to see the show. I can't remember if we saw any other shows, but it was just, you know, I mean, for a kid to be in New York City in in that time, that would be like, I don't know, 95, yeah. or 94, something like that. Um, it was just a very cool experience. I didn't understand why the subway smelled like pee quite as much as I do now. Yeah, you probably have a, um, a, a little more up close and personal <laughs> yeah, experience with I'm that like, now. oh, okay. It's because everyone's peeing in here. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was, a it was very cool. And to get to do that show, you know, with all the Disney magic yeah. and the crazy ensemble and the talent of the people was just really, really exciting. Kind of ruined me for doing anything else, I think really. <laughs> well, cause it's a spectacle, right? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, I, I think we had to sign like NDAs about not revealing certain elements of like Disney magic, you know, right. um, how things work, how the, how the candlestick talked. You're listening to Noah Reed on the Richard Krause show. His new album adjustments is available everywhere that you legally download and buy music. My character, I played chip in the, uh, in the musical and <laughs> chip had this like incredible thing where we were, I was kind of like stuffed into this cart that had this mirror, I'm breaking my end yeah. um, had this like mirror that like appeared that it was totally empty right. underneath the head. And, uh, and you know, people were kind of like, how did they do that? And I, w- I took great pleasure in being like, I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you're back on Broadway. You're working with the great Tracy Letts, who is not only an unbelievable actor and people have seen him in everything from divorce to winning time to, I mean, it goes on and on and on, yeah. but he's an unbelievable playwright Uh, as well. And he's written the minutes, which is the story of a small town. It's a council meeting. The minutes have gone missing for reasons that we find out later are kind of nefarious, but it's all about, uh, literally erasing history. The minutes have gone missing. That bit of history has been erased, but there's a great deal of history that's been erased. It is a big hit. You're at studio 54 Mm -hmm. and uh, like it, does it blow? do, Do you walk in every day going, wow, this is cool. It is, uh, it, 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 yeah, it just continues to blow my mind a little bit. And then, of course, like, you know, there's the daily aspect of it, right. which is that, you know, we got eight shows a week and it, and it, it becomes, in some sense, your routine. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not difficult with this play to to reinvite the uh, the conversations that it's taking uh, hold of yeah. and it's it's I mean we're I'm on stage with some incredible actors through that that Steppenwolf ensemble and and some of the 
the the veterans that are out there on that stage. You mentioned Austin oh, Pendleton. It, so I saw the show Brown. a few weeks yeah. ago. And where I was sitting, it's a big council table set kind of thing. Yeah. So where I was sitting, I had the perfect view of Austin Pendleton. You have seen him on television and movies for literally 100 years. Oh, He's yeah. been around forever. He does very little in this show, but you can't stop watching him. It's yeah. unbelievable. Oh, he, he and he makes it look so easy. He's That's just, it. He's yeah. just al- so alive in his yeah. in his character. I have a great view of him <laughs> myself every night. And um, but really, I mean, you know, and it, I I think a, a thing that doesn't get talked about enough in the in the Broadway world right now, and uh, you know, the Tonys highlighted this to some degree. But um, our understudies, our our covers in this show, um, I almost everyone has been on. Yeah. Um, in in one degree or another, we our stage manager went down with COVID, and so our uh, you know covers were covering f- for the assistant stage manager track wow. and learning how to call the show in case the ASM went down. I mean, it was it's just crazy the the uh, the level that everybody is is being asked to play at and and embracing that and really you know coming to the table with with the goods. It's well, it's pretty incredible. I think it was the show Wicked that they lost one of the main characters to COVID. All the understudies were busy doing something else. <laughs> and they found the woman who had played the character. She had retired from acting and she's selling real estate in Wisconsin or something. And they flew her in, did a couple of quick rehearsals and she knocks it out of the park That's and makes it happen. And then goes back to selling real estate in wherever it was that she came from. That's so killer. Yeah. I mean, but you know, with this show, it, it, it is, uh, it, I, to me, it really comes down to, to Tracy, Let's yeah. who has written, I think you know, it's just an incredible play, and it it couldn't speak um, more clearly about the time that we live in. Well, tell me about it. The last, and I will give nothing away here, but the last ten minutes of that show is probably the most memorable ten minutes on Broadway right now. Mm. Yeah, it, it really it's, is. It's harrowing, and yeah. and and I, <laughs> I think. I think you know it's a very fun little moment when the lights come up, yeah. um, and we get a a, a clean view of yeah. the audience who has just experienced something pretty intense, and yeah. and uh, and all of a sudden you know it's like we, it's like the stage has tilted up and it's a big mirror and the audience is left kind of thinking about you know how they fit into this whole thing and yeah. and. Um, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty epic to get to do that every night, and and he he gets going pretty good. You know, he he's coming at me downhill. You know, he he, he, he can. Uh, he's a scary dude. Man. Yeah, he's great. Well, if you <laughs> if you've read any like Killer Joe yeah. and anything like that, you oh, know yeah. there is a there is a well of darkness there that I think you know he mines every now and again. But the the first part of the show is quite funny, and it's sort of it, it it's light, and then it gets a little darker and a little darker and a little darker, leading up to this incredible finale, I guess it is, uh, that, that really made my wife and I breathless Mm. when we saw it. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. He, his, his capacity for darkness is, is definitely, um, well explored. And I, I think, you know, he described this the other day as like his cleanest play. (laughs) Cause we had a a few like kids come out to the stage door the other night and he was like, you know, you don't often see that at one of my plays where like somebody has brought their like, you know, 12 year old daughter to see the show. But it's actually, I think a great thing for, for young people to become engaged with this kind of work. And, you know, it's certainly, that's when I got, I got really excited about the theater and that in that time frame when I was, you know, in that 
in those early years where I was like, oh, man, I can't believe you could do this yeah. for a living. It would be wild. You're involved in projects that often have a social conscience, though. Mm. So Schitt's Creek certainly did uh, in in terms of, of, I don't know what the, the word is exactly, but for realistically and authentically uh, portraying a gay couple uh, with no judgment whatsoever hanging over it, as mm. so often is the case in, in television shows. Yeah. Um, you've done an audiobook adaptation of the Chrysalids, which of course is uh, is you know a, a book that is ripe with with social commentary. The minutes is. Are yeah. you drawn to this? I mean, you you must be to a certain extent, or are these just gigs that you're like, hey, this is cool, man. I'm I'm working. I I don't <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, to some degree they they have been finding me. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, they're there there's definitely that kind of undercurrent to my career at this moment, and um. I, I'm I'm all for that. I think that you know the arts are where we get to reflect on mm. on our our place in society and and how we might be doing things better. And and you know certainly it's 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 great. To, I mean just to work with the caliber of artists that I'm working with now. I also think that that's these conversations are just happening more and more in mm-hmm. society and and our our artistic landscape is reflecting that to a degree. Yeah. But. Um, you know, for me, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I think I come across like a real, real nice guy. So, you know, <laughs> people are like, yeah, we, this guy seems like he could, you know, carry that torch for a little while. That'd be good. But your character in the minutes undergoes a change. And, it, and it's one of those uh, Sophie's choices. It's one of those uh, amazing moments where in your life you choose the right path or the wrong path. And it's, it's fascinating to watch. And that is all I will say oh, because great. I don't want to give anything <laughs> away about it. So you're doing the show though at Studio 54. Yeah, I saw Alan Cumming do cabaret there over and over again because I couldn't drink it up fast enough. <laughs> I I went to see it once on Broadway, like at Studio 54, and I came home and I talked about it all week. My wife was with me. I talked about it all week so much. She booked tickets. We went the following weekend, oh saw God. it again, Amazing. and then took another like few months off. And I was like, I got to see it again before yeah. it goes away. And you did Cabaret on Shit's Creek, so you're kind of working in, on hollowed ground right yeah, now. Yeah, well, I, I I I don't know how uh, how how close my MC <laughs> is going to come to uh, to Alan Cummings. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies and Gentlemen, I am your host. But uh, but yeah, I mean you know I'm sort of a, a little a little th- connective tissue there. You're listening to Noah Reed on the Richard Krauss Show. His new album Adjustments is available everywhere you legally download and buy music. Yeah. And one last question about theater: You say that I'm terrified of musicals. You're a talented actor. You're a stage performer. You're a singer. We'll talk about Adjustments in just a second. Your new album. But uh, you don't want to put all those things together <laughs> and, and do it all at the same time. Is I, that it? I think that uh, music theater performers just have a have another gear that mm. I don't have. I think they're they're among the most talented performers working, and I I, I wouldn't presume uh, <laughs> that you know just because I I sing on TV and and you know in the studio that I can do that eight shows a week. It, that's it's really. It's something else. I mean, I've I've I know a lot of people who who work in music theater and 
and you know, I've I've had sort of my my brushes with it. I've auditioned for some musicals. I think that's where it comes from is being in the sitting in the audition room and right. hearing what people can do, <laughs> and then being like, oh my god, I have to go in and like approximate that like it's just such a do I think what I what I do my my path to music is just is is a little bit different it has to be more character based I remember you know uh, auditioning for Les Mis here in Toronto many years ago uh, for uh, for Marius and doing empty chairs at empty tables and like I was like man I think my only path to this is like to be like the angriest Marius that anyone has ever seen because like if you want a great singer you're gonna hire a great singer and I have to just be like literally like throwing chairs and tables around the room and they didn't end up wanting that yeah. um, which you know they, they went a different way they went a different they direction went a different way yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well congratulations Congratulations on the new album, Thank Adjustments, uh, which is available wherever you legally download and buy fine music. <laughs> I tell go. people yeah. about that. <laughs> um, let's uh, talk about balancing these two careers, uh, an acting career and a music career. Both are very active. Both are, are uh, you know, very successful. Are you able to, uh, would you be able to exist without one or the other? Or is it just something that kind of like two pieces of a puzzle fits together? I think yeah, it's it's kind of been both as long as I I mean you know music wasn't always a part of my professional landscape. It was it's been something that I've always done, um, and and largely as a kind of you know in my in my teens and twenties as a kind of like off gassing. Right, I would yeah, kind yeah. of like put things into my music <laughs> closet and keep them there. Um, but uh, but you know as as my professional world has expanded, you know music has become much more a part of my my acting world. It's it's how I was able, I think, in a lot of ways to differentiate myself. Um, and yeah, I, I th- they are they are intertwined. I mean, you know, obviously Schitt's Creek. There there was a a, a kind of a a musical component to that, yeah. which I I thought was really I was excited about that because it came from a character place. Same is true with Outer Range, the Amazon yeah. series that I yeah. that I do, and my character Billy really explores the world and experiences the world through music. So these aren't quite the the song and dance style of right. of incorporating that, but they do kind of work with each other. And I think even in my own songwriting, it's a way to explore character, you know, and 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 stakes and the reality of the given circumstances of of the character. In this case, it's me. You yeah. know, I I'm. It's my own viewpoint, and and um, and it's a way to process, you know, the, some of the the busier, louder elements of my life, you right. know. Um, Which I'm sure uh, you mentioned outer range. Uh, we won't probably talk about that too much, except that because it's great. But we, we're going to run out of time. Yeah. But you're working with Will Patton and Josh Brolin on that series. So when you say bigger and louder elements, I'm sure <laughs> that might have something to do with one or both of them. Oh, both incredible Legends. actors. Both Legends. Legends. So when I think of, of your music, when I listen to your music, I think singer-songwriters, I think Paul Simon, um, you know, who are your influences? Who do you think of when you sit down to, to write? I mean, I, I wouldn't compare my, my songwriting or my delivery style to these guys, but they're definitely my sort of touchstones. Yeah. That's Bob Dylan and, and Tom Waits. Um, you know, I grew up listening to Dylan and and like everybody. I mean, yeah. like Paul Simon and like yeah. Tom Waits, yeah. we were like, oh, well, it's Dylan. You know, um, and it's just the it's the the songwriting and the 
exploration of of you know the time that he's living in and the reinvention that I find so um, exciting with him. It's a, a long and storied career of that. And and Waits is a piano guy, and I love the kind of broken quality of both of those those guys as as a as an actor. I love that character sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean that whole era of 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 people who you know, wrote from their perspective, weren't afraid to say what they had to say, played their own instruments, you know, just wanted to get in the studio with great musicians and, and get music out to the world. And I think it was a time when audiences and, and listeners were really into that, too. We're, you know, now we're, we live in a much more uh, candied <laughs> musical environment. Yeah, I think. I, I think so. I think, you know, artists like Tom Waits, who I'm a huge fan of, uh, took a while. I mean, they, they were nurtured over time. Yeah. Uh, he probably played 10,000 shows before he made a record and, right. you know, right. and, and from there, and, and it took a little while. It didn't hit right away because it was unusual. It sounded like music that came from the bottom of a whiskey glass and it totally. wasn't radio friendly really probably right away. Although the melodies and, and the songs are beautiful yeah. so often, but there's a kind of dangerous beauty to them all almost. Well, and they, they, they invite the outcast yeah, to be totally. a part of it too, yeah. which I think is really, you know, uh, pretty brilliant and something that I, I hope my music does too. It's like, hey, everybody's welcome here. You know, yeah. uh, experience it and take it and make it your own. Listen, there's more people on the outside of the circle than there are on the inside. <laughs> That's right. And but everyone thinks, ah, oh, I want to be one of the cool. No, no, be, be part of the outside. Look in because yeah. it's, the view is way cooler on yeah. the outside. I yeah, think totally. Yeah. yeah. So does adjustments the album? A title refer to an adjustment in your career and your life post Jits Creek. There's broadly there's all sorts of things happening. Uh, is that kind of a a, a touchstone? Yeah, you? and I I think it was just a, a a word that kept coming up. And I mean, in any creative process, you're making adjustments every time that you go back to it. And uh, what I found was that the the notion of that was was hopeful inherently. Yeah. You know, you it's about it's about addressing the things that that don't quite work and you know working on them making some changes and and trying it again and i've i found that throughout this album when i'm looking for the common denominator that was all of these songs were about making a change in mm-hmm. some way you know if it was about you know uh shit's creek ending there's a song minneapolis which is about our live tour and an experience of a day that i had on that tour you know, uh, or or uh, left behind, which is similarly about not really knowing what's coming, or uh, rivers underground, which has some reference to you know getting married and and reflecting on the early stages of a relationship and how easy it would be to not to have missed that, mm-hmm. um, and and then some that have more that are more kind of like overtly about the <laughs> societal shifts that we've right. all undergone in in the last you know several couple of years here. Um, it just felt like there was this undercurrent of of adjustments that ran through the whole thing. Probably impossible to write an album of songs during a pandemic, right? Wherever we're at now, the tail end of the pandemic. Let's well, hope. Wood, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that doesn't reflect great change because right. I think I, I said all the way through, right from the very beginning, from March of 2022, I thought if we don't learn something from this, like if we don't take this time, which is going to be awful, and we're going to be locked down, but let's try something, like try something different. I pushed myself in ways that I didn't think were 
likely or possible. Yeah. Um, and you know, it was my wife and I locked up in our house, and I was wondering how is that going to work out. So we yeah. just we 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 adapted and we made adjustments and we changed and have come out the other end. I think maybe different, but you know, and possibly better than we went in. You're listening to Noah Reed on the Richard Krause Show. His new album Adjustments is available everywhere you legally download and buy music. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, and good for you. I mean that's that's the hope, right? Yeah. Like that that's the kind of the mindset you have to go into it with, because it is there is undeniable darkness in the world mm-hmm. around us, and and really it feels like it takes such a concerted effort to to have a positive approach and to to try to build something up and you know release something something good into the world. That's that's kind of the the dream scenario. Now you're doing eight shows a week on Broadway. Will you have a chance to play live with this? What will happen? What? How do, there are videos on YouTube that people can find, and the yeah. album is available wherever you legally buy, download, <laughs> and download music. But but how else do you get the word out? Will you play? I I hope so. I I you know another big adjustment for me is that uh, my my wife and I are expecting our first child in in, in yeah. mid August. So you know undoubtedly he'll have some uh, some say in what the tour schedule yeah, is. But right. um, you know figuring out how to play this this record live is is important to me. And um, I've actually you know created a a, a live show a, a a recording of a, a concert film sort of. Of this of this album, that, I don't know uh, about this. So that, that yeah, will tell be me coming about it. out. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's something that you know we've been working on and 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 not m- mentioning too right. much. But I think you know knowing that I wasn't going to be able to tour very much, um, you know, and and if and when, uh, this just felt like a, a a good way to get the band back together, yeah. play it. Um, the album art was is this brilliant kind of installation that my dear friend Cosmo Dean made of, of an abandoned storefront in his studio, and he kept it in his studio for a long time so that we could, you know, get the band in and, and play oh, it cool. in situ in front of this storefront. So, um, so that'll be coming down the pipe sometime soon, and and you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'll be getting out on the road for some for some actual live uh, performances sometime soon. And how long is the minutes? Running? Do we know? Uh, the minutes runs till uh, July twenty fourth, right? And um, yeah, and that you know that's that that'll be the longest run of a show I think I've ever. I think I was probably already the longest run of a show I've ever done. But it just, I mean, it's the beauty of the theater that ju- it just gets deeper and deeper. It uh, does because yeah. I often wonder. I mentioned earlier in the interview, I saw uh, Alan Cumming do cabaret three times. Two very intensely, very close together, and then one months later. And the show months later was much different. Right. Because he had lived with it for, you know, an extra few months. But everyone, everyone, it just felt different. And the, the sadder moments were way deeper, I thought. And the the, the buoyant moments were way more buoyant. It, right. But it was a much different show. Yeah. I I, I think it, it definitely, it just, you, you soak in it, yeah. you know. And... And whatever the kind of the there, I think when you open, there's a kind of a frenetic energy. Yeah. You, you you know you 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 know people are coming and you and you're holding it a little tight. And as you go, you kind of loosen a little bit. You understand where the pockets of the laughs are and and the rhythm of the show and how that can shift. And and also you know you, we're human beings. We have to keep ourselves engaged in some way. So you're fu- you're looking for little things to find with your with your castmates on stage. And sometimes that's, you know, goofing around. And sometimes it's like, you know, finding each other for a look that, that, you know, f- connects you. And, right. um, 
but that's I mean that that's truly the joy of getting to do this eight times a week is that it does shift and you know a number of people have come and seen the show like I saw somebody at the stage door had seen the show 12 times wow. and she wanted to talk to me about the differences between when she saw it this time and this time and I was like yeah it changes at yeah. night to night you know because you really what you what you what you're being asked to do as a performer is be present yeah. and so when you're present you know you're dealing with different circumstances all the time and the container is the same but you have to f- continue to fill it you've been listening to Noah Reed on the Richard Krauss show his new album adjustments is available now wherever you legally download and buy music we're going to round out the show today with a look at the smartest most celebrated game show of all time that's jeopardy claire mcneil joins me to talk about her book answers in the form of questions a definitive history and insider's guide to jeopardy i caught up with claire via zoom from her home in new york city i feel like i should be giving you the answers and then you ask the questions (laughs) but i think that's probably way too complicated Yeah, I don't think I do very well at that, but thank you for having me. (laughs) What led you to write a book about Jeopardy? Yeah, so I'm a staff writer at a site called The Ringer, and I cover a mix of sports and culture. And I like to joke that Jeopardy is really the perfect collision of those two things. It's a TV show that kind of turns into a sport when you squint at it. And you spent time with the late Alex Trebek and got to know him. Now, is there something about him that would surprise his fans? For the most part, he really was who he seemed like he was on camera. He was smart. He was sharp. He was funny. He was acerbic and kind of self-deprecating. I think that that many Jeopardy fans were uh, have historically been surprised when he when the camera switched off and he was just a little bit looser. You know, he Mm -hmm. would swear he was he was no longer like the the kindly grandparent. I mean, of course, he was still very kind. But, uh, you know, he'd talk about drinking alcohol and, you know, outrageous (laughs) things like that. Well, he really put his imprint on that show, and yet he didn't seem to take himself too seriously. And I think we saw that uh, when he would play himself on The Simpsons or on, on other shows. And I know that he was a big fan of the Saturday Night Live impersonations, Will Ferrell's Saturday Night Live impersonation of him. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the questions that he was always asked. One of his great personal traditions was that he would do a kind of impromptu Q&A with uh, the studio audience every day and, and just, you know, have people raise their hands. And every time people <laughs> wanted to know, aren't you offended by Will Ferrell? And it makes sense because it's a really uncharitable depiction of Trebek. He's mean, he's condescending, he hates his contestants, he wants to get out of there. But Trebek loved it he had uh just such a sense of humor about himself and um you know he was just such a performer and Mm -hmm. and he loved it and he was happy to kind of play into that character the fussy know-it-all which really was not him in real life but he knew that people kind of got a kick out of imagining that so i for the book i was able to talk to people like weird al yankovic Mm -hmm. who had him on the weird al show way back in the 90s and uh, trebek did a a cameo where he invited people to to join his know-it-all correspondence (laughs) school and weird al said that you know he just got the humor immediately and he was so ready to make fun of himself now did you grow up watching the show yeah, absolutely. It, it was something that was always in the background. Um, I was I was certainly not a diehard fan, and I I kind of fell out of it. I you know I went to college, didn't have cable, didn't have cable for a few years after college, and it wasn't until I I moved in with my fiance five or so years ago we had cable, and I had this kind of epiphany that we could start taping Jeopardy every night and watch it every night and play every night on the couch and compete over you know bicker <laughs> about who got more clues. Um, and and uh, it, it really just kind of 
reawakened this this passion for me and and that that is really the the beauty of jeopardy where it has been such a constant that you can you can tune out for a few years and then come back to it and it is still the same thing and i and i think that's part of what has made the loss of trebek really hurt and feel really personal because he has just been a constant for for more than 36 years in people's lives what do you think the show's enduring appeal is? You say you can, you know, tune out for a number of years and come back, and it's kind of the same as it was before. But there's more than that. It celebrates intelligence. It is a show that that is very kindly in the way that its online uh, community treats the uh, members. There's no losers. They are non-winners, you know? So there's something kind of sweet and really smart about it. And that, for me, I think has been the appeal. What do you think it is? I think that's really right. It is It is so sincere, and it is mm -hmm. a place where knowledge is rewarded. And, you know, it's important to know the world capitals, and it's important to know the works of Mark Twain or Jane Austen. You know, it's... Right. And, and that was really kind of part of the the thing that made Alex Trebek so great because he he really did believe those things. He really loved those facts. Um, and it, it just has been this this beacon of curiosity, of intelligence. Um, and it's just a really good game. It's it's 61 clues. It would be hard to cram more trivia into a half hour of television. You look at other game shows and they, they don't come anywhere near cramming uh, that much material in for the most part. And it's it's just such a good format. And that's I mean, it's it's reliably a huge, huge ratings draw, even, you know, almost four decades into its current iteration. Well, I've been joking that I think Alex Trebek probably asked more questions of more people on television than anyone other than maybe Barbara Walters. <laughs> <laughs> it might be true, honestly, it might be. I was trying to figure out if he'd worn more suits and ties than anybody else right. in history, and that one might be close, but the questions he probably has. You're listening to my interview with Claire McNear, author of Answers in the Form of Questions, a definitive history and insider's guide to Jeopardy. Earlier on, you called Jeopardy a sport. How is it a sport? Yeah, it um, it really is very sport like. So it, over the last five years, um, there there really has been this revolution amongst contestants, and this is one of the things I wanted to capture in the book, mm -hmm. where it has become very very sport like. It, it is compared to Moneyball by a lot of people, in that um, your average contestant now the odds are really good that they have been maybe trying to get to Jeopardy for years, but they've also probably in a, at the very least the month before the month between getting invited to the show and actually going out to Los Angeles to tape, they prepare in these mm. kind of physical ways. They, they practice standing for hours and hours and hours. They, they um, build buzzers and wire them to their computers to shave fractions of seconds off of their reaction time. They use advanced statistics to tell them what to do with daily doubles, where daily doubles would be, what to do in Final Jeopardy. And it has become this incredibly rigorous thing. People train physically. They get in good shape so that they will have a better chance on the Jeopardy stage. What's the best way then to beat the buzzer? Because that seems to be a real key to success on that show. Yeah, it, it has bedeviled many a contestant over the years. Um, it, it there there are so many competing schools of thought on on what to do. There there is a, a former Jeopardy contestant named Fritz Holznagel who has become kind of a, a guru of the buzzer um, in recent years, and he has a, a set of best practices that have become very popular, which is you know always use your dominant hand, always use your thumb, always keep your hand in front of you. Um, 
he, he advises you to chug a cup of coffee on, in the green room immediately before you got on the Jeopardy stage. So you'll hear reflexes will be as sharp as possible. Wow. Um, yeah, there's I mean, there's a lot of complicated theory to it. But the, the, the tricky thing about Jeopardy is you really don't know if you've mastered the buzzer timing until you're on that stage. Uh, Ken Jennings has compared it to an Olympic sport where the athletes in the Olympics were trying their sport for the very first time. It is it is so tricky, but it is such a, a cornerstone of the Jeopardy game. Now, who came up with the answer in the form of a question format? Yeah, so uh, it was the the wife of Merv Griffin, Julian Griffin, um, originally came up with that. And, and it was a response to the 1950s quiz scandals in the U.S. where there had been these cheating scandals on these mega popular quiz shows. And uh, Congress amended the Communications Act to basically make it a federal crime to cheat or help somebody cheat on um, a quiz show. The thought behind the answering in the form of question was really just kind of a bit of playfulness on her part. Um, the idea is that you're just handing over the answer straight away. So, you know, you're doing the thing that is now illegal. And of course, it's not because they have to work out the rest of it. But it, it really was this kind of playfulness in Jeopardy's DNA. That was Claire McNear. Find her book, Answers in the Form of Questions, A Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy, wherever you buy fine books. Big thanks to Claire. A big thanks to Noah Reed for coming by. His album, Adjustments, is available wherever you buy fine music. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. And we'll talk to you again soon.